You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Good morning, Every Nation GTA. It is such a joy to share this message with you. Jennifer and I just absolutely loved our visit with you last fall. We cannot wait to come back again soon and be with you in person. And so uh, thank you again for inviting me to share this message with you. And I'm just going to be very upfront. My goal today is to convince you to embrace the college campus. I want to convince you to embrace the college campus And we're going to do this in two parts. I'm going to start with a passage of scripture that I think has some really amazing parallels to the college experience. And then I'm going to go from there and talk a little bit about my own observations and experiences to try to convince you to embrace the college campus. So we're going to begin in Daniel chapter one, and we'll start reading in verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Let's just take a moment to pray together as we begin. Father, I am so thankful for what you are doing in this place. Thank you, God, that you are with us that you are moving in our midst, that you have a purpose for this house. Lord, I pray for your blessing on each person listening to this message. And God, I pray that you deposit something in our hearts, Lord God, that will lead to transformation, that Lord will ultimately be for your glory and our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a little bit of context for this passage. So this was an incredibly dark period for the Israelites. So in 722, the Assyrians had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And now, a little over a century later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is terrorizing Judah and carrying off exiles. Now, the contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon for these exiles would have been incredibly stark. In fact, here's what one scholar writes. Babylon itself, the capital city of the land to which the exiles had been taken, was breathtaking in size and magnificence. The city covered a vast area and was surrounded by a system of double walls. Entry was by eight gates, all named after gods of Babylon, the showpiece being the massive Ishtar Gate. 
This opened onto a paved 900-meter avenue lined with enameled brick walls, which led to the Temple of Marduk and to temples to other gods. The Temple Tower, the Tower of Babel, rose in the midst of the city. Royal palaces were also on the grand scale, the famous Hanging Gardens, a symbol of their lavishness. It was to this city that the battered remnant of Judah, their own temple in ruins, had been taken. Everything about Babylon seemed to say that the traditions of Israel were dead. Real power and real gods were here. It is hard to overestimate the importance of the exile and the life and thought of the people of the Old Testament. The loss of the land, temple, and king, the center of covenantal promises, was shattering. I mean, if you were in exile, you were going to be asking all kinds of questions. What in the world just happened to us? How could this happen? I mean, is our God really the God of all the earth? How in the world are we supposed to serve God in a kingdom full of idols? Is there any point in even trying? Now, let's just switch our perspective for a moment to that of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, his goal was to dominate the ancient Near East. And what we have in Daniel is basically a summary of his strategy for doing so. And so let's just lay it out really quickly. Number one, overwhelm resistant nations with military might, demonstrating to everybody that Babylon's gods were superior. Number two, remove the kings in these nations and install puppet kings that will be loyal to Babylon. And then number three, identify relocate and reprogram the brightest and the best of the young people from these different nations and then train them to be loyal to Babylon so that they can serve in the court of Babylon or perhaps back in their homeland. Now, our modern world is obviously light years away from this ancient world, but even so, there are some striking parallels between what these exiles were facing and the challenge of college students today. Let me just highlight a few. Firstly, detachment. Detachment. I mean, the exiles from Israel would have experienced an overwhelming sense of detachment. I mean, they knew that the homeland that they were leaving was probably going to be destroyed. And what this meant for them was that now, moving forward, there was no nation, no home, no relatives, no temple, no traditions, no country to return to. I mean, they had basically lost connection with everything that mattered to them. Now, obviously, it's not quite to the same extreme, but so many college students face this overwhelming sense of disconnection and detachment. I mean, obviously, we're more digitally connected than ever before, but most students feel an incredible sense of isolation, disconnection, and detachment. In fact, this trend has been accelerating the past few decades, and it's even much bigger than the college experience. I mean, we're waiting longer to get married. We're waiting longer to have children. We switch jobs frequently. We move all the time. We don't trust institutions. I mean, not the government, not the church, not private industries, not the university community. I mean, some of us don't even identify with our nationality or our ethnicity or even our families. I mean, there's basically nothing left to bind us together. And this can leave us with a profound sense of isolation we can feel exposed and anxious and insecure. 
Now, secondly, and closely related, is the issue of identity. So Nebuchadnezzar's intention was to completely reprogram these exiles that he brought to Babylon. And so they were forced to study the language and literature of the Babylonians for three years. Now, this almost certainly meant being trained in the arts of divination, things like astrology and interpreting unusual births and even things like examining sheep livers. Now, side note, you ever wonder how this became a thing? I mean, who was like the first person to say, you know how we can discover something about the next king? Let's just look at this sheep liver. That will probably give us some insight. So strange, right, to our modern ears. The goal, though, was to reshape everything that these exiles knew. Now, on top of this, Daniel and his friends were renamed. Now, this was significant because in the ancient world, your name told you who you were. It might even tell you who your gods were. And so Daniel, which means God is my judge, was renamed to Belteshazzar, which means, O lady, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. Now, Azariah means Yahweh is a helper, but Abednego means servant of the shining one, Nabu. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, but Shadrach means something like, I am very fearful, or maybe command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael means, who is what God is? But Meshach means, I am of little account, or who is like Aku. Now, just like in the ancient world, identity is a major battle for most college students. I mean, I don't have to tell you this, but rates of depression and suicide are just skyrocketing on college campuses. I mean, believe in yourself is just not going to cut it. Love yourself is not going to do the job. We need something bigger, some more significant basis on which we can build our identity. Now, the third issue we see is defilement. Defilement. Now, this is one of the major issues that Daniel and his friends faced. Here's what the text tells us. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, we don't actually know the specific sense in which Daniel thought that he would be defiled by eating the meat and wine from the king's table. I mean, perhaps the meat and wine were dedicated to various pagan deities, or maybe there was something about the meat and wine that just violated something in the law of Moses. Or maybe it was just the case that Daniel didn't want to rely on the king of Babylon or his gods for success and prosperity in his own life. We don't know for sure. But Daniel was very aware that he could be defiled by what he would experience at the king's table. Now, for many for many students, their years in college, unfortunately and sadly, are just a moral train wreck. And so Anne Maloney, a professor of philosophy, writes this. It is no coincidence that the top two prescribed drugs at our state university's health center are antidepressants and the birth control pill. Now, on top of that, we know that porn use is having just a massive impact on college students. Something like 90% of college males and 75% of college females are viewing pornography very regularly in their lives. And this has all kinds of impacts. In fact, we know it even has significant spiritual ramifications. So here's what one sociologist found. 
any porn use is associated with declines in religious commitment and behavior, things like attending services and prayer, and an increase in religious doubts. If you wanted Christians to be less committed to praying, going to church, and reading their Bible, and wanted them to doubt more, just get them to watch porn. Look, there is a spiritual battle taking place on our campuses. There is a spiritual battle. Nebuchadnezzar recognized the strategic nature of targeting the young leaders in these various nations and reprogramming them to be loyal to himself. But if we don't see the strategic nature of what's happening on the college campus, we'll just avoid it. We'll just avoid it. And so I want to convince you to embrace the college campus. I want to embrace, uh, encourage every nation, GTA, to embrace the college campus. And here's why. Number one, although there are some exceptions, almost all future Christian leaders go all in for Jesus by their teens or early 20s. I mean, this is almost universally true. We see this actually both in the scriptures and in church history. Let me give you a few examples. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Now, isn't that a boss of a name? I mean, what a name. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. When he was around 15 years old, he committed himself with a group of friends to live righteously before God. A year later, when they were 16, they actually created a more formal society. And here were their commitments. Number one, to be kind to all men. Number two, to be true to Christ. And number three, to send the gospel to the nations. To send the gospel to the nations. So in 1722, Zinzendorf established a place for refugees who were fleeing from persecution. And word got out that he had this place of refuge in Saxony, Germany. I mean, people started fleeing there from all kinds of places. And I'm telling you, it was a crazy lot. I mean, some of the people who showed up were just total misfits. There were times where it felt like this community was just going to completely descend into chaos. But in 1727, in this surprisingly diverse group of people who were all running for their lives, not in their own homelands, God poured out his Holy Spirit. In fact, shortly after that experience with the Spirit of God, an around-the-clock prayer meeting began. 24 men and women committed themselves to each take a one-hour shift in the day so that there would be prayer happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And do you know that that prayer meeting that started in 1727 continued for over 100 years? This was a prayer meeting that lasted for over 100 years. Now, that small community of believers ended up making a massive impact in the world. By 1800, this small community that never grew beyond a few hundred people sent over a thousand missionaries into the world. I mean, this is incredible. The very first missionary they sent out went to enslave peoples in the Caribbean island of St. Thomas. In fact, the first missionaries that went out were willing to themselves be enslaved so that they could preach the gospel to others who were enslaved. Now, over the coming years, I mean, missionaries went to all kinds of places, including Greenland, Newfoundland, South Africa, South America, Russia, the eastern end of Asia, the western end of Asia. 
I mean, it's almost impossible to overstate the impact of this small community of Moravians that began when a young person committed himself to go all in for Jesus. Let me give you another example. St. Patrick. Patrick was kidnapped when he was a teenager and enslaved in Ireland. Now, here's what Patrick writes. It was here in Ireland that God first opened my heart so that even though it was a late start, I became aware of my failings and began to turn with my whole heart to the Lord my God. For he looked down on my miserable condition and had compassion for me, young and foolish as I was. He cared for me before I even knew who he was, before I could tell the difference between right and wrong. He protected me and loved me, even as a father does his own child. Because of this, I cannot, I will not be silent. I will tell of the great blessings God has granted to me and the grace he has shown to me in this land of slavery, because this is the way we should behave toward God. When he has shown us why we were wrong and we have admitted our sins, we should praise him and proclaim his kindness to everyone in the world. Now, Patrick, amazingly, eventually felt called by God to go back to the land of his slavery, back to Ireland. And he had a massive impact on the peoples there. And the peoples that came from that community ended up having a massive impact on all kinds of other nations. Again, we see when one young person goes all in for Jesus, incredible things can happen. Now, when we look at the scriptures, we see the same pattern. And so King David was very young when God described him as a man after God's own heart. The disciples of Jesus were probably college-aged when they started following Jesus. Timothy was a young man when Paul apprenticed him, and he started traveling around, preaching the gospel with Paul. Look, the college years are incredibly significant. They are incredibly significant. I mean, for most people, this is the first time that they are living on their own and they're making all their own decisions in life. I mean, I can remember when I went off to college myself, to Florida State University in the great state of Florida. And um, I mean, I was just full of contradictions during this time. I didn't really know what I believed about God. I mean, if you asked me, does God exist? I might have said, well, I think so, but I'm not sure. So I can remember my freshman year, we had a great football team at Florida State. And so our Heisman Trophy winner, Charlie Ward, was um, giving a talk at a local church. And so I thought, yeah, I want to go see this football player. So I showed up and listened to Charlie Ward. And it was so funny. Later on that week, I'm back in my dorm room and I'm watching something on the TV that maybe I shouldn't have been watching. And I get this phone call and my roommate says, hey, it's for you. And I come over to the phone, and it's somebody from this church inviting me to come back to church. And I remember saying, hey, turn down the TV. I don't want them to hear this, right? I was just this walking, just human body of contradictions. So I can remember having a conversation with my dad the summer after my freshman year, and I'm talking to him about all the doubts I have about whether God exists, about whether any of this is true, knowing yet at the same time, if it is true, my life should be different. And so my dad asked me a very direct question. He said, well, if you died today, do you know you'd be going to heaven? And I said, no, I don't know that. Now, I had a job at the time working at a local Subway restaurant making sandwiches. And so I typically closed down the store at night. And I remember soon after that experience, 
I'm mopping the floor late at night, not even sure if God exists, but recognizing I need something to change in my life. And so I started by myself mopping the floor late at night, crying out to God with very honest prayers. God, I need you. I need you, God. Come change my life. I wasn't even convinced that there was a God I was praying to. I didn't even know what was going to happen. But thank God, our God is gracious. And he met me in that moment. And to my great surprise, he began to turn my life around. I mean, what I valued, what I thought about, how I spent my time, all began to shift. And so I know from my own experience just how significant the college years are. Look, most leaders who are going to lead in the church and do something great for God are going to go all in for Jesus in their teens or early 20s. And we need to be there to help more young people take that step. Now, number two, the college campus is the very best place to reach single men. It is the very best place to reach single men. You do not have enough single men in your church. Now, I don't even have to be there to know that because this is true of basically every church. There are not enough single men in my church. I mean, look, it can be difficult to find single men. Now, I know I can get an amen from the single ladies out there, right? Help me out, single ladies. It can be difficult to find single men. And the university campus is one of the best places where we can still find large groups of single men. And so if you want single young men in your church, you need to embrace the college campus. Number three, reaching the campus will keep your church from becoming lame. It will keep your church from becoming lame. Now, the older I get, I've noticed that I tend to do something. I keep updating what my definition of old is. So I can remember when I was a junior in college, uh, I had a roommate who was like 25 years old. Now, at the time, this dude seemed so old to me. I remember thinking like, dude, what are you doing in college? Like, are you coming back for like a second career or something? You're so old. Well, I am 48 years old now. And let's just say I have updated my definition of old just a little bit, right? I mean, I can't choose 50. That's just around the corner. So I can't say 50 is old. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe like 65 or 75 or 80. Maybe that's how I would define old right now, right? Look. You may think that you're young and cool, but you're probably not. You're probably not, right? If we want to keep our church from just becoming lame, we need to reach a younger generation. Look, in North America, the median age of church attenders just keeps increasing. I mean, right now it's around 60 years old. That means half of people attending churches in North America are already older than 60. And so if we want to keep our church relevant and connected to what's happening in the world, we need to reach the next generation. And there is no better way to do that than reaching out to the college campus. Number four, college ministry is an incredible environment for training young leaders. It is an incredible environment for training young leaders. I remember when I first started doing college ministry, I basically was terrible at all of it. I mean, it was so bad. I feel so bad, actually, for the college students that I first tried to reach out to. I mean, I remember giving my first sermon ever when I was about to graduate as a senior in college. I studied 
all week. Man, I mean, I prepared for hour after hour after hour. I decided I'm going to preach on the heart. I mean, that sounds important, right? The heart. What's more important than that? So I studied. I'm trying to look up every verse in the Bible in which the word heart occurs. By the way, there's like a million of those. And so, man, I worked so hard. I gave this first message, and I felt like I talked forever. Well, as it turns out, about 14 minutes. I talked for about 14 minutes. It was so terrible. It was so bad. It was so awkward because I didn't know what I was doing yet. I mean, I was just bad at all of it. I had no idea how to mentor students. So I can remember meeting with this young man. He was a freshman, one of the few people who was getting involved in our college ministry at the time. And I remember thinking, all right, I'm going to help mentor this guy. And so I'm going to go right at the key issue. And so we met together and we, you know, just caught up for a few minutes. And then I asked the key question. So man, how are you doing with lust? That's the key issue, you know, for like every college guy. How are you doing with lust? And so he looks at me and he goes, doing great, man. No problems. And I'm stunned. I'm like, really? Like no problems at all? Like I'm thinking I still have a little bit of challenge here in this area, but maybe you should be mentoring me. He was like, yeah, no problems. Well, that's like all I had. So I was like, all right, well, great. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I can remember trying to reach out to the lost. Man, I was so afraid to do that. I had no experience. I was afraid I was going to be shut down and rejected by everybody. I mean, sometimes in our little fledgling campus group, we actually had more people up in the front in our band leading worship than we had out in the audience singing along. It was just so awkward. I can remember one time one of our students actually wrote me a note explaining to me that the presence of God was not at any of our meetings. Kind of a bold move, right? Well, I remember thinking, I know that. Look, I'm bored at our meetings. Why would the Spirit of God want to show up to our meetings? I mean, it was just all terrible. But in the middle of that, God started to grow me. He started to grow me. This was such an opportunity to learn. And if you want to develop a next generation of leaders, I'm telling you, college ministry is one of the very best ways to do that. Number five, there is an incredible opportunity for multiplication on the college campus. There is an incredible opportunity for multiplication on the college campus. Now, as I was just describing, again, when I started out as a young college minister, I mean, it was just so terrible. And I can remember at one point thinking to myself, what am I even doing? I mean, I'm terrible at all of this. Nobody really understands what I'm doing. I'm barely making minimum wage to do this. I mean, what is happening? I'm getting ghosted by 18-year-olds. I can barely convince the university to give me a room every week to meet with students. What in the world is happening? Well, now, some years removed from that, I can tell you what was happening. I was multiplying. I was multiplying. In the inside, in those moments, it felt like every little bit was a struggle. It didn't feel like very much was happening at the time, but God was at work. When we show up and we're faithful to reach out to the next generation, God will go to work on our behalf. And so I can remember over the next few years, so many different students that were connected with our college ministry, God began to launch out into the world. And so Adam and Hope Mabry went to Scotland and helped plant two new churches. 
Then they came back to the United States, partnered with Donnie and Jana Fisher, and they've now planted this amazing church in Boston that's reaching thousands of people. That church then planted a new church in Providence, Rhode Island, and now they've got another church plant in the mix. I can remember Daniel and Jessica Gilland went to Georgia Tech and then eventually went to New York City and helped plant a church there. Clayton and Kelly Bell planted a church in Tampa, Florida. Ross and Amy Middleton planted a church in Miami, Florida. Dave Hess went to our, came on campus as a campus minister and started multiplying the work in Tallahassee, where I had been. Now he's with us in Philadelphia and has multiplied it many times over. And now uh, so many more. Uh, Billy Bernhardt and Nozomi and James and Gabby and so many others are just doing a great work multiplying because on the college campus, there's an opportunity to multiply very quickly. God is calling us to embrace the college campus. It is part of who we are. It is in our DNA. And I believe one of the most strategic things you can do as a church is embrace that college setting right where you are. I just want to take a moment to pray for you as you begin to enter into this new academic year. I want to believe with you for God to do a great work of reaching students and raising up new leaders from the campus. Let's just take a moment to pray together. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in the greater Toronto area. Father, I thank you that you are present on that university campus. Lord, this great university, Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that your favor and your blessing and your anointing will be on this house to make a great harvest among college students. Uh, Lord, I'm asking this year, that you would draw some key leaders, Lord, some people that are going to attract and draw others. God, I pray it would be almost magnetic, Lord God, that people will be drawn to this church. And Lord, they will enter into a new season of multiplication. Thank you, God, that you are committed to building your house. Lord, we put our trust in you. I pray and I ask that you will do it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, friends. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.